If you would, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. This is the first time that I can recall that I've preached or taught through the book of Daniel. And I've been here now 42 years. It is worth noting in a relatively small congregation, I'd say very small congregation, we have four individuals who are named Daniel. Uh, Dan Noble, one of our elders. We call him Dan, not Daniel, but Daniel's his name. His grandson, Marcus Daniel. Then Titus is Titus Daniel, and his son is Ransom Daniel. Uh, seems quite remarkable that we have so many Daniels in our congregation. The book of Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six contain stories that I think we associate with Sunday schools, stories that we are familiar with, stories for children, one might say. The second six chapters have prophecies that seem to be more for scholars and theologians, things that even all these centuries later we are trying to decipher. The reality is these are not two books, two separate books. It is one book with strong unity. And if we want to understand the second half of the book, we really need to understand the first half. And I think a lot of people miss that. They see the first half as story and the second half as prophecy, apocalyptic visions and all that. But it actually, the 12 chapters go together. Without going into detail, there are at least two main schools of thought about the book of Daniel. One holds that it was written not by Daniel, but centuries after this certain person lived, and whether or not he was a real person is, is another issue. That it was written when Israel or the people of uh, Judah were going through great difficulties during the time of the Maccabees, um, and so this book was written to encourage them. And I, I just don't think that this makes any sense whatsoever. The other view is that this book was written by Daniel. And it wasn't written to people suffering persecution. It was actually written for people who were living rather comfortable lives. Uh, they had settled in Babylon and everything seemed to be going well. They were living in an alien culture, but they were doing well. What are you supposed to do when life is going well and you're not living in a Christian or in a God-fearing society? Well, what we see in the book of Daniel is that there's to be a steady pursuit of the good life as far as the environment will allow. We are to faithfully cooperate with those who are in authority as far as our consciences will permit. We are, in fact, to follow, this Daniel's telling people to follow the customs of the law in spite of the opposition. So later on we will see that he prays three times a day even though it is forbidden. There are to be habits of devotion. There are to be regular habits. We need to cultivate these habits because oftentimes when life is good, we forget these things. When life is difficult and there's persecution, I think people are much more, they're keenly sensitive to the fact of the need for prayer and the need for studying of scripture. When we come to the second half of the book, we will see that this call for steadfastness is still there. Even as Daniel is in a position of political power, he's not a priest, he's not a prophet, he's a politician, if you wish, a government official. Um, 
And yet we see his example that this is how we are supposed to live. Because the reality is, as settled as our lives may be, they can, in fact, very quickly be turned upside down, as had happened to the people of Judah. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Jewish Bible, uh, they have the Old Testament. The book of Daniel is not put among the prophetic writings. They have three categories, the law, uh, the first five books, the Bible, which, by the way, in our reading through scripture, we will finish Deuteronomy today. Then there are the writings, which are the historical writings. And then you have the prophets. Well, Daniel is not put in the prophets. He's put in the historical writings. Uh, When the Bible was translated, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, it was then put among the prophets. But the reality is Daniel was not a prophet. There are elements in his writings that are prophetic, um, but he really fits in more of the category of the wise man. And we have wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, But he seems to be more a wise man than a prophet. And in many ways, he is like somebody else that we see in Scripture, and that's Joseph. If you think of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and the parallels between the two are striking. Both men were exiles. They were captives taken to a foreign land. Both were examples of following God's law. They did what was right. They both served high positions in government. Uh, Joseph was second to Pharaoh, and Daniel was in the court of uh, first the Babylonians and then the Persians. Both are recognized for their ability to interpret dreams, Joseph for Pharaoh and Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar, and both were seen as wise. Just to digress for a moment, what is wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? Well, Zib actually read it to us today in reading from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It is someone who hears the word of God and puts it into practice. Wisdom is not simply a matter of knowledge, but it is of knowing and doing. And the foolish person, as Zib read to us, is someone who hears. One could say they know, but they do not do what they should. In the Old Testament, wisdom runs throughout the whole book. From the beginning, I would say, and for us in the New Testament, to the book of Revelation. Why is it that Eve ate from the tree? Because she wanted to become wise. And then the book of Genesis ends with a wise man, and that is Joseph. Through discipline, modesty, knowledge, self-mastery, and the fear of God, he gave wisdom gave noble form to his whole being. Before Pharaoh, he proves himself a shrewd counselor, and before his brothers, the man who can be silent. Finally, the one who covered up all sins with love. In the Old Testament, we have at least three books that are known as wisdom books, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Certain portions of the Psalms are considered wisdom literature, I think I want to make a case that maybe Daniel should be part of wisdom literature as well. The wisdom books do four things. They tell us to think hard as well as humbly. It's not just that sort of, you know, wherever the spirit leads me, but to think hard, but to do it humbly. To keep our eyes open. Um, I don't think we do nearly enough of that. Keep our eyes open. To use our conscience as well as common sense and not to shrink from the most disturbing questions of life. 
We are to pursue wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet there are people in scripture like Daniel to whom God gave wisdom. We see this with Joseph. We see it in Daniel. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read about the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. These were the wise men of Issachar. In the book of Esther, we read, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matter of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. There have been people throughout history, I would say both believers and non-believers, to whom God has given the gift of wisdom. With that in mind, let's jump into the book of Daniel. The first two verses give us the background. This is the historical backstory against which Daniel is to be understood. If you look at the first two verses of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. The taking of Jerusalem, of Judah, happened in stages. And this is one of the early stages where Nebuchadnezzar does not destroy the city, but he takes the king, puts another king in his place, and he takes some of the articles out of the temple of God. And he takes some hostages. Daniel is one of those hostages. As we begin Daniel, we need to put ourselves in the minds of the people of Daniel's time. Their world had turned upside down. What was happening did not seem to be possible. They saw themselves as the chosen people of God. But they had been led astray, and we've been hearing it as Gia's read to us from Jeremiah, that God would let them do whatever they wanted and they would still be God's chosen people. They read the scriptures in a way that put them at the center of all things, not God's law. So God's law was conveniently put aside. They saw themselves at the center of things. They believed that God was going to fulfill his purposes in them. And he was but they thought that that would allow them to do whatever they wanted. They believed that the line of David, the the dynasty of David, would continue without interruption until the second David, the Messiah, would come and then Jerusalem would be given its place as the center of the world and all nations would come and worship God there. Under the reign of the Messiah, Israel was going to experience its fulfillment. It would be the center of a worldwide commonwealth. They would be the center of the world. Jerusalem and the temple would remain until that day. This magnificent temple that Solomon had built. And then Nebuchadnezzar came. And it wasn't just in 605, that's when he first started. But later on, nine years later, he destroys the temple. He destroys Jerusalem. How can they now be the center of the world? How can people now come here to worship God when the here is no longer there? The city has been destroyed. And now you have a group of people, including Daniel, who no longer live in the promised land. 
In fact, where they are living is where Abraham started out. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and they went to the promised land. They were in Egypt, then they were back, and now they are back where they started. It doesn't make sense. They are now a small minority, a tiny minority in an alien culture that is sometimes hostile, that is sometimes friendly, but it is certainly alien to their faith and stands against everything they believe in. The question is, how do they fit in without being swallowed up? How do they fit into this society without disappearing as God's people? How are they to view the promises of God? The covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant made at Sinai and renewed in Moab right before the Jews, the Israelites, went into the promised land. How are they going to do this? After all, they're, they're back at zero. They're back where Abraham started. What are they to do? Are they still God's people? What is their destiny? Is God going to deliver them out of Babylon the way he did out of Egypt? Is God going to keep his promises? Should they remain faithful to God? Or has God abandoned them and should they in fact in turn abandon God and serve other gods which they had been doing all along? Should they hold on to the old ways, the tradition, Mosaic law? Or should they blend in? Should they assimilate with Babylonian culture. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a plan, and his plan is that the Jews will assimilate into Babylonian culture. Look, if you would, at verses 3 through 7. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. See, Nebuchadnezzar is in the process of creating an empire. He's conquering all the nations that are around uh, Babylonia. He needs to have individuals to help him govern those places. And what better people to do that than people who are from there? People who speak that language, but they need to be trained in the right way. They need to be able to speak Chaldean. They need to be able to know the literature, the law, the history, and all of that. So they have a three-year program in which people from various nations will basically become Babylonian. Well, as maybe a secondary cultural thing, or primary, but they still have the old ways that they were born into. Not just anybody can enter into this program. And you see the list of qualifications is given that they are young men without any physical defect. Um, They're to be handsome, showing aptitude for any kind of, every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And they were to receive training. 
They were to learn the language and the literature. They're to learn culture. They're to learn statecraft. How do Babylonians think? If you're going to serve in the king's service, you can't think like a Jew. You have to think like a Babylonian. Now, beyond the three years, there included in the program was a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, why this is included in their training, we don't know. It's simply open to interpretation. Was it to prepare them for the king's service? Because they would be the king's representatives wherever they would be. And so, this is what they eat back in Babylon. This is how the king serves his guests. Maybe they were to learn it from there. But was it to be an enticement? Was it saying to the, to the young men, this is the good life. Serve the king and this is how you will eat for the rest of your life. Perhaps it was a way to win them over. Maybe the king isn't such a bad guy after all. Okay, yeah, we've heard the stories about Nebuchadnezzar and he was just as bad as all the other kings of that time. Uh, his troops would go in and burn houses and destroy towns uh, and temples. They would rape women. They would kill. They would enslave um, But after three years of the good life, you might begin to think that Nebuchadnezzar isn't such a bad guy after all. Yeah, he brought us here, but you know what? Our life is better here than it was back home. How are the Jewish young men to respond to Nebuchadnezzar's program? Should they accept his offer uncritically? Are they settled down and make a new life in Babylon? This is the issue. Should they cooperate or should they withdraw? There seem to be at least two, two options for those who are in exile, those who are captives. To withdraw from mainstream Babylonian society or to blend in with Babylonian society. In a wonderful book called Chameleon Christianity, Moving Beyond Safety and Conformity, Dick Kyes writes about the twofold temptations that may result from being a minority in a non-Christian society. We went through this book uh, years ago in Sunday school. One of the temptations is to tribalize, that is to withdraw from society and to be in a ghetto, to be in a Christian ghetto and say, we're not going to do what other people do and withdraw from normal life, if you wish. The second is to compromise and to make accommodation. In the first, the key word is isolation. That is, rather than engaging with real people, uh, Christians sort of will withdraw into communities or communes, ghettos. That way they don't have to deal with other people. And I remember years ago, after I had just finished Bible college, meeting a pastor who told me of his grand plan for his church was to have a church and to have a school, and then he was going to build uh, like a department store, you know, grocery store. And he said... And then my people won't have to come in contact with non-believers. That's one of the temptations when we find ourselves in the minority. But the second one says, no conflict, let's just go along. You know, get along, go along and compromise and do what it is that other people do. As Dick Kais points out, both of these are forms of worldliness. Compromise, I think we would say, yeah, that's worldliness. But we don't realize that isolating ourselves, we're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be light. We are not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world. 
Jesus is the one who challenged us and told us that we are light and we are salt. And if, with we, if we withdraw, then we are not doing what we were made to do. There must be a third option. It's not just isolation or accommodation. There has to be a third option. And I believe this is what we see in Daniel and his three companions. And we see throughout the book of Daniel. Back home, they were either nobility or from the royal family. They're from the tribe of Judah. We were told that. Now they have the opportunity to be part of an elite group in Babylon. What are they to do? Some might suggest they should have refused the offer. To be honest, I'm not sure that was an option. They were prisoners. They were captives. If the king says, you're in my service, you really don't have a choice about the matter. Some might have seen this as an opportunity to get ahead, the way parents want their kids to go to great colleges, to good colleges, universities. Yeah, this is a way for their sons to get ahead and make a good living so they can take care of them later on. Events are moving quickly. Their world is turned upside down. They need to grab whatever it is that they can and move on. Stay ahead of the game. Well, for isolation... We do have an example of a group of people that are mentioned just in passing in Jeremiah chapter 35. They're known as the Rechabites. And I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're only mentioned very briefly. Um, Let me just read to you when uh, Jeremiah invites them over to his house. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family and said to them, drink some wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine. Because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. These are people who are apart from Jewish society. They're Jewish, but they're not going to live in houses. They're not going to plant They're going to live in tents. They're going to be nomads the way that Israelites were in the wilderness. Don't drink wine. That seems to be like the Nazarite vow. Don't build houses or plant crops. God never told them to do this. This is something that Jonadab made up on his own. Um, But it was a way of living outside mainstream society. And maybe the Jews could have followed their example. We're in Babylon, but we're not going to live like Babylonians. We're going to live apart. Fitting in was not as easy as we might imagine. It is from this period that we have Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you O Jerusalem. May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you. 
if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. How can you think of job opportunities at a time like this? How can you think of working alongside Nebuchadnezzar being in his service? Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. And you're thinking about getting a job? You're thinking about entering into this elite service of the king? But there was that letter that Jeremiah sent. It's found in Jeremiah 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and the priests. And to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray for Babylon, the peace and prosperity of Babylon. But again, some might wonder, how can you think about job opportunities at a time like this? Again, there may not have been much choice. They were, they were captives, after all. But one might argue that these four young men who are mentioned here in Daniel 1 had sold out. Not only are they now in the king's training program to work in his service, they now have Babylonian names. To Daniel, the name is given Belteshazzar. Daniel means God is my judge. To Hananiah, which means God has been gracious, it's the name Shadrach. To Mishael, whose name means who is like God, is given the name Meshach. And to Azariah, God has helped, is given the name Abednego. The giving of a new name was in fact a sign of new ownership. They belong to the Babylonians now. And they now owe their allegiance to the Babylonians. We see this with Esther, by the way. Esther is not her Jewish name. You recall that her name was Hadassah. But within the Persian Empire, as she enters into this contest, she becomes Esther. That is her Persian name. And instead of names that extol God and his wonderful graciousness, God is my judge, God has been gracious, who is like God, God has helped, they have been replaced by names that directly or implicitly refer to Babylonian gods. So you go from having a good Jewish name that glorifies God to having a pagan name. It seems that they've sold out. Isolation or compromise? I would argue that Daniel and the three, brother, the three men that are mentioned did neither. Look if you would begin in verse number 8. They cooperated, but they did not compromise. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. 
Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who ate the royal, who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. As best we can tell, these young men are not priests. They're from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. They're not prophets. Um, They are not leaders of any sort in the religious life of the Jews. That structure is gone. The temple is gone. No more sacrifices. How are they supposed to live as God-fearing Jews? The survival and continuity of the people's faith will depend on the witness of truth in the lives of its people. And we see it in these four young men in this first chapter. They are not merely individuals, and I want to stress that because we may lose sight of that as we go through Daniel and we just hear about Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Like These people stood together as a group. They are not merely individuals. I would argue that it is almost impossible for anyone to maintain a vital faith in God and a strong witness to God's working in our lives apart from strength, wisdom, and fellowship that comes from being with God's people, being in a community. As I said, this is key to us understanding Daniel, but I think it is key for us to understanding what God wants for us as his people. There are times when we see him standing alone, and this fits in with the modern view of the heroic figure who stands alone. He stands apart from everybody else. He's not like the masses. That is not God's plan. His plan is for us to be in community with one another. In fact, if you look at verse number 8, we might misunderstand this and think that this is simply Daniel standing up against the tide that is coming his way. But we find that there are three other names that are mentioned. And there may have been more. They are willing to cooperate. They are willing to say yes to the challenges and the changes that Babylonian life brings. They are being realistic. Their names will be changed. They are now in a program that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. They are prepared to serve Nebuchadnezzar in his royal service, but not at the cost of their own identity and their national history. The fact that they were willing to do this is seen here in this incident mentioned in the first chapter. It begins rather quietly and dramatically with an interview that takes place between uh, Daniel and we think Ashpenaz, the uh, chief of court officials. And the issue is food and drink, both basic human activities that you need to survive. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Why make this the issue? Why draw the line here? They've taken Babylonian names after Babylonian pagan gods. I think I might have drawn the line there. They're being trained in Babylonian language and literature, which includes culture and statecraft, which I would say could be rather Machiavellian. Um, Why draw the line at food? To be honest, we don't know. We're not told. There are speculations, and let me suggest some 
possible reasons to you. First of all, the food, the king's service, probably came from pagan temples. It had been offered to pagan gods. In the same way we see in Leviticus how that food is offered to God, the God of Israel, this food is offered to pagan gods and then given to these young men to eat. They don't want to eat meat that's been offered to pagan gods. Secondly, it's possible and probable that this food violated the dietary laws we find in Leviticus. There are certain foods that Jews are not to eat. They are to keep kosher. And Daniel and his friends are like, no, we are not going to break the dietary laws. Um, In fact, if you look in Leviticus, time after time, Israel is told not to defile themselves, not to make themselves unclean by eating such food. And we are told that Daniel, in fact, would not defile himself. He refused to defile himself by eating this food. And so it very well could have been the fact that it violated the dietary laws. I think one last reason possible is that eating the king's food meant absolute allegiance to the king. And Daniel and his friends will serve the king, but they serve God first. And when there is a conflict, uh, the three the three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace. They will not bow down and worship the image. Daniel takes a stand and he suggests to the chief official, uh, test us, give us 10 days, 10 days and we will eat vegetables and drink water. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine, nothing wrong with eating meat. Um, But this is where they draw the line and they say, this is what we will do. It's a risky but it's a three-year program, ten days, you know, what can it hurt? And the official agrees. And when it is finished, Daniel and his friends who have taken a stand are proven to be right. That they are seen as being healthier and more nourished than those who eat from the king's table. There's one more thing we need to see before we leave chapter one. And that is that God is in control. It's been mentioned several times already, but we might have just sort of glossed over it in verse number two. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That is Nebuchadnezzar's. In verse nine, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. The first one we might have missed because we're so focused on Nebuchadnezzar and what he did to Jerusalem. The second one we might have caught But now here at the end of the chapter, near the end of the chapter, we are reminded of something we should never forget. Look, if you would, beginning at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. How easy it is for us to forget that which we cannot see. We think what we cannot see does not exist but the reality is what we see is only a part of the picture that God is always there and he is always at work I think this is particularly the case when things go horribly wrong or at least things turn out differently than what we want and we think God where were you why, why, 
Why did you allow this to happen? The book opens with God's people being taken into exile. Then we learn that the cream of Jewish society is being trained in the Babylonian ways for three years. But we are gently reminded from time to time that God is still at work. Can't see it. We can hardly imagine. Really? Really? God is at work? How is this possible? I don't know if you caught it. It wasn't trying to be sneaky, but I read over it rather quickly from Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Wait, I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar. God is in control. And in the same way that Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and then Potiphar has him put into prison because of his wife's lies, God is there. God is in control. And I find it striking that both with Joseph and Daniel, we have God working in ways that frankly seem not to make a lot of sense to us. But God is still at work. I hope that there is much for us to learn from the book of Daniel. Particularly because in my lifetime, we have seen our society go from having at least the facade of a Christian uh, culture, Christian language and atmosphere to being fully post-Christian. And frankly, I think the church is still trying to figure out what to do about this. How are we to live faithfully in today's society? And the, do- the, the dual temptations of isolationism and compromise are still there. But I think in Daniel we see a third way in which we can fit in, we can cooperate, we can be part of mainstream society without compromising our faith. I think where Daniel has it over us is that he had wisdom. God had endowed him, imbued him with wisdom. Um, We should ask that God would give us wisdom as well. But I think there's something else. He had community. He did not act alone. I think as American Christians, we have lost sight of this. We exalt the life of the individual. And so to be a strong Christian is to stand apart from all other Christians and for God to lift you up. And this is never what God intended. It is not what he intended. I think one of the ways that we see how badly we we miss this is go back and look at what we call the Pauline epistles. Just read the first five verses of each of the Pauline epistles. And you'll find that it's Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. We we never talk about the second or the third guy. We always talk about Paul. We focus on one individual and one individual alone. God wants us to live in community. And we are to speak to one another about our jobs, about the decisions we make, the choices we make. We're going to mess up. Let's get that out of the way. We are going to make mistakes. We will compromise at points when we shouldn't. And we may isolate ourselves when in fact we should be fully engaged. But when we talk to one another as God's people, as a congregation, I think we will then begin to do what Daniel and the other young men did. And that is to fit into a pagan society at high levels, by the way, in the government service. And yet not compromise. 
Fit in, but don't compromise. Don't isolate yourself. That, that's a coward's way out. And it is worldliness. But neither should we compromise. I think that we can fit into almost every legitimate form of vocation in society today. By God's grace. We can fit in. We can cooperate. We can work. We can be in the government. But we must be true to God's word and to what he's called us to be. I hope that this study of the book of Daniel will be profitable for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we often find that we go to extremes. Either we withdraw or we compromise. And within those scenarios, we read Daniel in a very different way than what was intended. Here we see a faithful man of God who was given a pagan name, who worked in the king's service, who was trained by the king's men, and yet stood for what was right. He did not lose his identity as one of the chosen people of God. He did not turn his back on you, but remain faithful. For us to be the same in today's post-Christian and even pagan society requires wisdom, but it also requires that we talk to one another, that we work these things out, talk them out, to see how it is that we can do the jobs that you've called us to do without compromising our faith. And in that way, we can be salt and we can be light. Not hidden away under a bushel, but where you have put us, as you did with Joseph and with Daniel, to be your servants in the service of others. May this time that we go through Daniel be profitable for us as a congregation. May we be wise people who not only hear the word, but put it into practice. I thank you for calling us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.